if you have a Bible, I'd like for you to join me in the Gospel of Luke in the ninth chapter. We're in Luke 9. One of the things, one of the things that we saw crystal clear from Luke 8 is that He is the Almighty One. He is powerful. He, he, he speaks and the winds are calmed. He, he speaks and the demons flee. He, he heals disease. He speaks and the dead come back to life. He is the Almighty One. And then at the same time in Luke 8, what we also see is that he's the compassionate one. That remarkable combination in one person, the Lord Jesus, full of compassion and also full of power. Can we agree that we're thankful today that he's both? That he's not just powerful, he's also compassionate. And he's not just compassionate, he's also very, very powerful. And perhaps, I don't know what season of life you're in, um, uh, you need both, but maybe one in particular is uh, especially in need of in your life. He's powerful enough to raise the dead, and yet he's compassionate enough that as he does so with the little girl at Luke 8, he takes her by the hand and gently speaks to her, my little lamb, arise. This is great a combination that we see in the character of our Savior, that he's powerful and he's compassionate, compassionate enough to die for our sin, powerful enough to raise from the dead. Now that we're in Luke 9, we're making a bit of a transition, and uh, let me uh, give you a little bit of a metaphor for our approach to Luke 9. One of my, um, you know, we live in this pretty remarkable age of technological advance and all sorts of things. I mean, we've got things today that even 15 years ago, we would not have imagined like what your phone can do, what your a tablet can do, and so on and so forth. One of my favorite advances is this thing called Google Earth. Have you, uh, how many of you know about Google Earth? You're on Google Earth. You don't even have to know where you're going anymore. It'll tell you. You know, and one of the things is you can pretty much go anywhere in the world and at least look at pictures of everywhere. You can go to the middle of the ocean. I, don't, I mean, you can't go under the ocean, but you can go. I love to type in an address of a city I've never been to. When I was going to go to Mumbai, India, I typed it in. And, you know, the, if you've seen it, it does the little spin of the globe, and then it begins to go in. And, and you can zoom into the city block, right? And you can zoom out and see the whole uh, city. When it, when it comes to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, we can zoom out and see the big picture. He's powerful and compassionate. And we can zoom in to, to one life and see how he interacts with the demoniac, or how he interacts with... So, so in Luke 9, we're, we're going to do the, the zoom out approach. We're going to take 36 verses, which is kind of a lot of verses, but, but we're going to zoom out and just get some big picture stuff, and then maybe in the coming Sundays, we'll zoom in a little bit more carefully. So, so we're going to read, actually, all 36 verses, uh, uh, Luke, 1, Luke 9, 1 through 36 together. Let's do that. Let's do that right now. He says, he called, verse 1, He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now that was our text last week, brief synopsis, brief recap, because if you're like me, I've got to hear things two or three times before it really sticks. The summary statement is that Jesus blesses us with power and authority as we, and all three of these things are important, he blesses us with power and authority as we listen to, obey, and share his word, as we do all three of those things. 
Now, the strategy of the enemy, I'm convinced, is to put a, put a detour or a speed bump or a brick wall in between one of those things, that you listen to the word, but you don't obey it, or that you listen and obey, but you don't share it, or on the very front end, that you don't listen to the word at all. And so what we see here, two things real fast, not re-preaching last Sunday's message, is Jesus calls them together for the purpose of equipping them to be sent out. So, so two mistakes. One is to try to go out to proclaim Jesus, but you don't spend any time with him. Ever tried to do this? Be a witness for Jesus at work or in your home, but you don't actually spend any time with Jesus. Now, if you're going to share Jesus, you've got to be with him. Second mistake is to think that you can be with him and he's not going to send you out. I love Sunday mornings. I love this. And we're all, we got our Bibles open. We're going to study the word. But it's a, it's a mistake if we think when we roll and conclude this service in, in just a little time, that, that the whole point of us coming together is that we're going to go out those doors to proclaim this message, to share this Jesus, to put others first, to obey this word, and to be a testimony of his saving power in the community where we live. I mean, just think of all the different places in and around Rocky Mountain, Nash County, and Nash, that we're going to go when we leave from here. And the point is that we disperse from here and take the gospel with us. Okay, so now Herod, verse 7, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been risen from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For we were about, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And had them all sit down and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he, was a, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. 
As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what had over what they had seen. We'll pray together and then take a Father, this is what your word says. 36 verses from the Gospel of Luke, the ninth chapter. Give us grace, Father. Give us grace and mercy to see how precious and valuable these words are. Give us grace to to know what the message is that, that your word proclaims, what it has to do with our lives in 2014. And when we leave from here again, help us be equipped that we've not come just to hear something for my own life, but, but yes, my life, and also to share and proclaim in the lives of others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my message this morning from this text is broken into four different points. Big picture from Luke 9. Four things. Uh, first of all, is Jesus' message gets different responses. That's one of the things that Luke 9 says multiple times. Uh, we won't reread all those verses, but for example, chapter 9, verse 7, it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. And then a little bit later, he asked him, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. So the message is going out, but it's, it's getting different responses. For example, Herod the Tetrarch, this influential, wealthy government official, he's got one response. And then this fisherman named Peter has another response. And so as we go through Luke 9, there are different opinions about Jesus. It says here in Luke 9, verse 7, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. Here's his response. And he was perplexed. That Greek word perplexed, it it gives the connotation of, you don't quite know how the pieces fit together. In other words, uh, it's like Herod's looking and he's hearing all that's happened. And here's a piece, and here's a piece, and here's a piece. And he's thinking back to John the Baptist. We won't go into all the details this morning, but Herod's a pretty wicked man. He's filled his life with, with wicked things. He, he had John the Baptist's head cut off, and, and in his wickedness, he's, he's actually a little bit fearful. He's like, has John the Baptist come back from the dead to get me? Even the most a hard-hearted person somewhere down there is fearful that all these things are actually true, that there is a day of reckoning that's coming. And, and, and so he's perplexed. The Bible says that Herod loved to go and hear John the Baptist preach. It's almost like it was entertaining to him. He's, he's like uh, Festus in Acts, the telling of Acts, who liked to talk to, P, uh, to, to Paul, rather, but never made a decision. It, it, says, here, here's, uh, it, it says down here in verse 9, Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? I, I mean, Herod's a government official. He, he can pretty much do whatever he really wants to do. And if, and if he wants something done, he gets it done. And it just says he sought to see him. In, in other words, Herod's perplexed. He's interested, but has other things going on in his life. And so in the end, when it comes to Jesus, Jesus is going to stand before him prior to his crucifixion. And you remember what Herod says? Just do some sign for me. I've heard about all these signs. And you fed 5,000. And, and Jesus, do you remember what Jesus says to Herod? Here's what it sounded like. He didn't say anything to him. Herod thought Jesus 
stood before him. But that's actually not true. Herod stood before Jesus. Now Herod's perplexed. Herod's perplexed because, because of that reason. He's got the whole dynamic confused. He thinks Jesus has to come and stand before him. No, 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 no. He sought to see him. No, 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 no. You have to stand before Jesus. That's one of the responses that Jesus gets. There's, there's other responses. Some people say he's Elijah or, or he's one of the other prophets. We see that multiple times, don't we? They recognize there is something different about Jesus. The Jewish people in that day considered Elijah to be the greatest of the prophets. Nobody was more revered or respected or honored among the Jewish culture than Elijah. The day of Passover, they, they'd leave a, a chair empty because that was their anticipation before the kingdom of God comes, Elijah's going to come back. So, so it's respect. They recognize there's something different and special about Jesus. One thing they all had in common, no one associated Jesus with their scribes and Pharisees. Of all the opinions given, nobody says, well, you know, he reminds me of the scribes and Pharisees. No, no, no. They said there's something totally different about him. They tip their hat to Jesus. But here's the issue. We're not to just tip our hats to Jesus. We, we must bend our knee to Jesus. Now, there's a variety of opinions about Jesus. But here's kind of a take-home point under this subheading. A variety of opinions about Jesus, but they cannot, they cannot all be right, can they? This is, a, this, is this, this, this almost breaks my mind, the culture we live in, because the culture we live in continually insists that different opinions can all be right all at the same time, and that cannot possibly be so. Jesus cannot be Elijah or one of the other prophets or one of the other. So that means, are you ready for this? Somebody's opinion, I know this hurts, hurts our pride somebody's opinion is actually what wrong somebody's wrong and we live in a day when when the spirit of the age says well everybody can be right again the illustration if i asked you right now to point north now some of you do that but the direction north 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 is that way by the way i just know that because that's where i-95 north is going Right, so north is that way. Now, it doesn't really, respectfully, it doesn't really matter what your opinion is of what direction is north. You can assist, insist that north is that way. You can believe it. You can be passionate about it. That's the word everybody throws around today, as if being passionate about something makes it right. You can be passionate about something and be 100% wrong. And in these days, they've got all sorts of opinions about Jesus. And Herod's perplexed, and they want to just go on and discuss it, and discuss it some more, and discuss it some more. Now, here's a take-home from Luke 9. There comes a point when the discussion has to stop, and a decision has to be made. Amen? Now, in our culture, again, here's a phrase, a a statement that, that I hear all the time about a variety of issues. Well, we just need to have a public discussion about this. We've got to have a dialogue about this. We've got to have a debate about this. Now, now, listen, debate and discussion are healthy. That's fine. But the whole point of debate and discussion is to come to a decision. 30 minutes or so from now, many of you are going to be in the parking lot, and here's going to be the question, where are we going to go eat lunch? Now, there's going to be a variety of opinions about that. Some of you are going to say LTAP. Some of you are not going to discuss it at all. You already know it's LTAP, right? Are you going to go here? Are you going to go home? There's going to come a a discussion. But do you ever get in the midst of the discussion, you just end up saying, I don't care where we go, just somebody what? Make a decision, right? 
Because discussions over time are just exhaustive. They just, somebody make a decision. He's Elijah. He's one of the other prophets. He's John the Baptist come back from the dead. And we know a decision has to be made because in verse number 20, after Jesus says, who do people say that I am? He said to them, who do you say that I am? All sorts of speculation going on. And, and, and this, by the way, is the context of the transfiguration. Oh, you think he's Elijah? Well, how about this? How about I'll just get Elijah himself to come stand beside him so that you can look with your eyes and say, well, okay, he's not Elijah. He's not Moses either. In, in fact, Moses and Elijah have come to talk, talk to him, so, so that's out. So who is he? And here's the deal. Speculation ends where revelation comes. Did you see there was a revelation of who Jesus is? All the people got their opinion. Herod, the Tetrarch, oh, Mr. Government Official, he's got his, he's got his opinion. Peter's got his, his proclamation. But what really matters is verse 35. A voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And right then and there, discussion is over. Debate's done. If, you, if you're having a discussion and God speaks, guess what? <laughs> the discussion's over. The debate is over speculation ends when there's revelation. There are a variety of opinions about Jesus. That was true then, and it's also true now. He's either the Son of God or he's not. And it doesn't really matter what we're right about if we're wrong about Jesus. Are you able to clearly articulate your belief about Jesus? Do you know what you believe about Jesus, right? Are, are, are you sort of still with Herod and you're perplexed? You're interested, but still a little foggy, still a little vague, still a little un, uh, not come to a decision? Well, let me just give you an encouragement. A decision does have to be made. It does. And if you spend your whole life procrastinating, procrastinating, procrastinating the decision, you still have to make a decision. The problem, though, is if you wait too long and this little Small little ticker we all got in here, beating, beating, beating right now. When it stops beating, that, listen, it's too late. It's too late to make a decision at that point. The decision will be obvious. You, you, faith is done. Sight has come. And if you've not bowed the knee of Jesus, if you just say, well, he's a good teacher, he's like Elijah, he, we, we tip our hat to him, then it's, then it's too late. So number one, Jesus' message in that day and now, it gets different, it gets different responses. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 1, same book. Just turn back with me a little bit. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Just just reminding you the whole reason Luke set out to write this. Luke 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitness and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So here comes the whole point of why Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke said, I wrote this so you'd have certainty. Not that you have a discussion that just goes on and on and on, but that you could come to a decision. John in his gospel says, I've, I've written these things that you may know that you have eternal life. Not John's gospel, but the epistle of 1 John, I should have said. So number one, Jesus' message gets different responses, but your application for your life is though they're varying responses, there has to be a decision. And not everybody's opinion can be right. Somebody's wrong. Either he's the son of God or he's not. 
I believe he is the son of God. I believe he is the savior. I believe he is God come to earth in the flesh. I I believe he did go to the cross. I believe he was crucified for my sin. I believe when I stand before before God, I have nothing to boast in on myself. I'm going to boast in my works that I lived a good life, that I was a nice guy, that I was a good husband, that I was a good dad. I don't have any of those things to boast in. The Bible tells me that I'm born sinful and selfish. And and I cannot be justified by my own life. I, I need somebody to stand in my place. And I believe that's who Jesus is. He's the son of God come to earth to be crucified and to bear the punishment and the wrath of God against my sin in his own body. What an amazing savior that though there was no sin in him, he took my sin on himself that in him, the sinless son of God, he who knew no sin became sin that in him, we sinners, we might become the righteousness of God. What a savior. God demonstrated his love for me and that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. And I do not stand here today to proclaim to you that Jesus is just a nice guy and a good teacher and he's like Elijah and he's one of the prophets and you ought to listen to him and tip your hat to him. I've come today to proclaim to you that you need to submit to him. You need to bow your knee. You need to recognize that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the great I am. He does have all power and authority and dominion forever and ever and ever and ever. And before you stand before him, recognize that he stood condemned in your place. And the one that I will be judged by is the one who took my judgment on himself. Glory to God in the highest. Secondly, Jesus requires great sacrifice from his disciples. We learn the absolute necessity in this text from, from, um, uh, of daily denial. When Jesus articulates and says, okay, disciples, here's what I want you to do. They're extreme measures. Don't take anything for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, whatever house you enter. And then on down, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And that, that message, that call flies in the face of everything about the spirit of our age. Our, the spirit of our age says, don't deny yourself anything. If you have a tendency, if you have a desire for something, that in and of itself justifies taking it, having it, living for it. And Jesus just said, if you're going to come after me, you have to deny yourself. The spirit of our age says not to deny yourself anything. You can have it all. Jesus calls us to something completely different. He calls us to crucify the flesh, overcome the world, resist the devil. A crucified savior does not produce self-pleasing, self-indulging, worldly-minded people. He says, no, if you're going to come after me, you must deny yourself. And the only thing greater than the requirements of following him is the loss you will face if you don't follow him. I'll give you you an example that that I often use in my life. When I was uh, 15, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, I loved to play basketball. And uh, all the guys in my neighborhood that I grew up in, we loved, we all loved, that's kind of our thing. School was over. We kind of meet up where we're going to go play today. And so uh, we ended up putting a basketball goal in at our house. I mean, having the concrete pad made and so on and so forth. And um, back, this is the mid-90s. And so we, we loved, uh, of, course, of course, Michael Jordan and, and all the guys that played back then. I, I really liked Akeem Olajuwon, who was this player for the, anyway, we don't have to get into all that. We, but the problem was we could, not, we could not do on the basketball court what those guys could do. Obviously, right? I mean, basketball is played on a 10-foot goal. And uh, they came up with this remarkable uh, technological advancement called an adjustable goal, right? So you put the basketball goal in, and then it's got this, uh, it's got this uh, I'm, I'm 
already over my head in explanation. Basically, you can take that goal from 10 feet and lower it to nine and a half feet, right? And sometimes we take our trampoline, the little trampoline out there, and we dunk and do one, so on and so forth. But we, we, we got that goal down to nine and a half feet, and then when we're playing, we can dunk the basketball. We could throw that ball off the backboard, take it, and do a reverse slam, and I could really get good when we lowered it to nine feet. Now we're talking. I mean, now there's nothing, nothing I can't do. I mean, I became a better jump shooter. I became a better uh, 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 dunker and so on and so forth. The problem was, the problem at one point, we had played on it so much that, that we broke the goal. And it got stuck on nine and a half feet. Now, most of the guys that I played basketball with a little bit older than me. And so they, they graduated high school and they went on. And so I'm left with two years um, uh, 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 by my, pretty much by myself. The, the little group of guys that I ran with all graduated. And so after school, I would just go in my backyard and shoot basketball. And I would, I would think up letters to write to Julie connecting it to, uh, to, to last Sunday's sermon. And so I'd, write, I'd do my rough drafts out there, and I'd shoot on that goal and shoot on that goal and shoot on that goal. And, and, and uh, from 3.30 in the afternoon till 5.30 in the afternoon, basically every Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, in 1995 and 1996 and 1997, I shot on that basketball goal. Then I graduated high school and went to uh, Campbell University, which is a, a university out in the middle of nowhere, enjoyed my time there, but there's not a thriving scene around Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. And so one of the things that was really happening at that university was intramural sports. And so these group of guys that I'm now with on, on my hall, they get a basketball team together to play intramural sports. And so you go to the games because nothing's going on. The, the gymnasium is packed. I mean, there's not a seat to be found. And so we get out there our first game and, uh, and we're running up and down the floor. The whole, there's not a, you know, everybody's watching. I'm a freshman in college. All right. And you know how it is when you're trying to make a good impression, right? I play basketball all the time. So, so, we're, so, so we're going down the court, and a uh, guy passes the ball two minutes into the game, and I find myself on the baseline wide open. Nobody's around. So I say, oh, I've got this. Uh, I, I, I bend my knees. Got, form's good. I shoot the ball. And if the goal had been nine and a half feet, I'm convinced <laughs> that it would have gone in. It was on point, it was, it was heading the right direction, and then it just, you know what an air ball is, don't you? you know what an air ball is. Have you ever been watching a basketball game, State, Carolina, Duke, Wake Forest, whoever, and, and somebody shoots a ball, and then the whole stadium begins to chant, air ball, air ball, air ball, air ball. Have, uh, you probably, have you ever had that chant directed at you? <laughs> Your first week of college by the entire university every time I watch a game now and somebody does that I I say I can empathize with you my brother I've been there it's embarrassing you wanted to crawl under a hole I didn't take another shot the rest of the game had a couple of shoot it shoot it oh I'm gonna I'm gonna gonna get assists I'm gonna set somebody else um I'm fearful at times we open up this book and here's what it says to do and then we get in our lives and say I just can't do that and no disrespect to you, God, and your rules and your ways and your law, but, but I know this is your 10-foot goal to deny myself, to take up my own cross daily, but, but I find that difficult. It, can, can I just lower that a little bit? Can I, can I just bring that down from 10 feet to, to nine and a half feet? And that way, my performance seems a lot better to me. Now, now, here's the good news of the gospel. God does not expect or anticipate anybody in this room obeying this text apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of the living God. This is not a, all right, go out and do it. Do you ever feel like Christianity, has it ever been presented to you and taught to you in this method? All right, now go out and do it. 
That's not in this book. You know what's in this book? You can't ever do that. You can't do that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Are you kidding me? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Are you serious? If there you remember, if, if there you're giving your offering and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come back and give you. Are you, are you kidding me? Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. That's illogical and impossible. Unless, unless the Holy Spirit of the living God has raised you from spiritual death to life. Now not set to, now you go out and do this, but I'm going to come live inside of you and sanctify you. And no, you're not going to be able to do this perfectly, but as time goes on, I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to, and, and I'm going to do this in you because you could never do this for yourself. It's here we must point out that the only thing more costly than following Jesus is the cost of not following Jesus. It's in this text right here. Did you see it? Verse 25, chapter 9. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? J.C. Ryle, a preacher from the 1800s, said, The possession of the whole world and all that it contains would never make a man happy. Its pleasures are false and deceptive. So long as we don't actually have them, they glitter and sparkle and seem desirable. And the moment we do have them, they are empty bubbles and cannot make us feel content. And worst of all, when we possess the world's good things, to the utmost bound of our desire, we cannot keep them. Death comes in and separates us from all our property forever. There is no loss that is worse than the loss of a soul. All other losses, as severe as they may be, they're bearable. But the loss of a soul, to lose God, to lose Christ, to lose heaven, to lose glory, to lose all eternity, to be cast away forever in hell, now that is unbearable. The call of Christ is a call to forsake the world so that you will gain so much more. It's like Jim Elliot said, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's not a foolish proposition, is it? And that's what Jesus is saying. Leave this, crucify yourself so that you can have so much more. Now, the great mistake that we make is to think we can do both, to think that we can have Jesus and the world. And my friends, brothers and sisters in the Lord, that's not so. Are you able this morning to offer up examples of what you have forsaken in order to gain Christ? Some specific things in your life. You say, I've given this up so that I can have Christ. I've turned my back on this so that I can have Christ. So first of all, big picture, Jesus' message gets different responses. They're varying opinions, but they can't all be right. What's your opinion of Jesus? And Jesus is unique in this way that your opinion of him doesn't reveal him. It reveals, actually reveals you. He's unique in that way. Uh, your opinion and conviction of Jesus ought to match what the revelation from God the Father in Luke 9 says. It's his son with whom he's well pleased. Listen to him. Secondly, Jesus says that my disciples... I require great sacrifice from my disciples. Third, big picture, is we see that Jesus' prayer life is constant. His prayer life is constant. Look in uh, verse 19. Um, excuse me, verse uh, 16. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then verse 18, now it happened that as he was praying alone. Then verses 28 and 29. 
Now about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and James uh, and John and went up to the mountain to do what? To, to pray over and over and over and over again in Jesus' ministry. We see that his prayer life is constant. Now there's no greater indicator of your spiritual health than your prayer life. Say it again. There's no greater indicator of your spiritual health than your prayer life. Both the frequency of your praying and the content of what you pray for. Prayerlessness is a spirit of independence from God. It's actually a form of pride. When you don't pray, you're essentially saying to God, I don't need you. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And then he encourages us in John 15. He's the vine where the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Jesus spent more time before God talking about people than he actually spent before people talking about God. Prayer was the key to his ministry. He prayed all the time. He purposely uh, sought out desolate places to pray, away from distraction, away from uh, interruption. And his praying was always kingdom-focused. The word and prayer go together. So again, allow your Bible and your study of his, of his word, like we talked about last week, as you study through it and think, think it through, and here are sins to avoid and commands to obey and promises to believe, and here's what it says about God, and here's what it says about me. That shapes your, your prayer list. For example, we could take what we're talking about this morning and immediately say, Father, I have been debating and discussing and perplexed about who Jesus is. Would you give me grace to know clearly who Jesus is? I'm not denying myself on a regular basis. I am trying, Father, to have it both ways. Give me grace to deny myself every day. And then, and then last point, briefly, is that Jesus' purpose was misunderstood. It was even misunderstood by those who, you would think, would not misunderstand it by those closest to him. Let's look at what his purpose is. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 21. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Look at 28 and 29. Again, now, about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and James and John and went up to the mountain and prayed. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. Now I want you to notice what the content of their conversation was during the transfiguration. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So when Moses and Elijah come in glory and they talk to Jesus, their conversation is not about the ball game. It's not about the weather. It's not about politics. It's about the gospel. Moses and Elijah... All these men who proclaim that he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Jesus is standing there saying, I'm here. And it's totally misunderstood. It's totally misunderstood. It, we, we keep getting this. In fact, this is going to be the major theme in the, in the midst of Jesus' public ministry. Look in, verse, uh, look in verse 43, the second part of it. While they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him anything about it. Go, go, go to verse 51. We didn't read this in our, in, in earlier, but when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And here they are arguing. They're going to have all sorts of arguments. So who's the greatest, and who's going to do this, and who's doing this? And it's Jesus is telling them over and over, I'm going to, be, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to suffer. It's anticipating what's ultimately going to happen in Luke 24, if you'll just bear with me for a moment. On the day of his resurrection, the Bible says these group of women went to the tomb, taking with them the spices that they had prepared. And when they got there, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, have you heard that word before? Perplexed about this, confused about this. 
Same word used of Herod the Tetrarch. What do all these things mean? How do these pieces fit together? While they were confused and perplexed about this, uh uh-oh, here comes another revelation from heaven. You're confused? Let me explain it to you. Behold, two men in dazzling apparel stood by, and they said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Remember how he told you when he was with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day, raise again. But his message and his purpose was misunderstood. The Messiah was misunderstood. He says three things are going to happen to him. He's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. Actually, four things. He's going to die, and he's going to be raised. And everybody else's focus was on the momentary meal they had just eaten, the feeding of the 5,000. Their opinions spoke louder to them than God's revelation. And, And can I just tell you just in a quiet moment, that still happens over and over and over today. We get up and say, well, here's my opinion of what today should be about. And here's the Son of God saying, here's what your day's about. I came to suffer and die, be rejected. Now it's raised again. Now go live in light of that. Go share. Oh, here's why I got to do this today and this today and this today. Everybody around Jesus was focused on the momentary physical pleasures or needs of life. Herod the Tetrarch certainly was. And then even these who were fed with the 5,000 over in John 6, it says they came to seek to make him king by force. Why? Because he gave him something to eat. And Jesus' purpose is misunderstood. He actually came to do so much more. The mission is so contrary to their assumptions. And the path into the kingdom is contrary to what they thought. They want an earthly king to satisfy their physical desires. And Jesus has come to do so much more. Similar to asking if you're able to clearly express what you believe about Jesus, are you able to state clearly your understanding of the mission of Jesus, what he actually did? And in conclusion, I'll give you a pretty good place to start. (laughs) It's in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. You know what the great thing about the Bible is? Is if you sometimes struggle and have a hard time sharing the gospel or articulating great truths of doctrine... Just memorize what he already said. <laughs> Makes you a great theologian. Makes you a great witness. You don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to articulate it. Put it in your own words. He's already put it in his word. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 15. Say, I don't know how to share the gospel. Memorize Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 15. Here's, what, here's the way Paul articulated it. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. <coughs> training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to do what? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Why did, why did Jesus come? To feed 5,000 people? Well, he did do that, but that wasn't the only reason he came. To teach? To preach? Jesus came to give himself for us. Now, not to get too technical on the language, but it's the, the preposition for is in place of, instead of. Substitution for you, instead of you. He came to give himself for you 
for the purpose of redeeming you from all lawlessness. Now, please, in the spirit of this age, realize Jesus did not come to redeem you unto lawlessness. Some people get that so backwards. Well, he's going to forgive me anyway, so I'm not going to go live it up. No, he didn't redeem you to lawlessness. He redeemed you, help me, from lawlessness and to purify you. Can we get some Bible correction on this? There is no redemption apart from purification. He doesn't redeem you and not then begin to purify you. He redeemed you. He raised you up. He purchased your redemption. He was crucified for you on your, on your behalf instead of you in order to redeem you, to purchase you back, and then to purify you. Now, some people think they can have one without the other. My friends, don't believe a half gospel. He, be, he, he, he saved you to redeem you from all lawlessness and to purify you. For what purpose? For yourself? No, 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 no. For his own possession. He said, you belong to me now. You're mine. You're my family. And the result of that is, then we'd be zealous for good works. You want to know a pretty healthy measure, indicator? If you're born again, are you zealous for good works? Are you zealous for good works? He called you in to send you out. Now, wrap it all up. In Luke 9, we find there are a lot of different opinions about Jesus. We find there's great misunderstanding about the mission of Jesus. And at the same time, we find Jesus constantly praying. And we find him issuing a call to deny yourself to follow him. So can we put all these four pieces together so we're not perplexed? Here's how all the pieces go together. We live in a culture today where there are a lot of opinions about Jesus. And there's a lot of opinions about the mission of Jesus. So in the midst of that, what should you do? Be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. You've got to get up in the morning before your heat... uh, heat for your feet hit the floor you still got to start praying god i live in a place where there are all sorts of opinions about jesus keep me near the cross keep me near the heart of his mission keep me near the gospel all day long god i'm going to be surrounded by people who don't uh, who, who have different opinions apart from the revelation of god of who jesus is and god i got to be constant in prayer to keep denying myself daily turning my back on what you've redeemed me from we must be constant in prayer and daily denying ourselves Or we are prone to misunderstand who he is and what he has done. We must be constant in prayer and daily denying ourselves. Or we'll be prone to misunderstand who he is and what he has done. Well, let's stand together. We'll pray together. The grace of God has appeared. Aren't you thankful? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation you ever been saved? Been born again? Been brought from death to life? The grace of God is to be bringing salvation for all people now. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. But you got some ungodliness and worldly passions in your life that are strongholds. Now no, notice, it's present tense. Training us. It's ongoing. He started a work in you. And now maybe there's a marker in your life. You, you, you got to let go of some things, some worldly passions in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. Do you find yourself in a posture of patient waiting for Christ to come back? Your hope set on heaven? Oh, if you set your hope on earth, you'll be sorely disappointed. He gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself. People who are zealous for good works. Are you zealous for good works? That's enough to to use the invitation time to think on, isn't it? 
Have you been saved? Is he training you to renounce ungodliness? Are you zealous for good works? Let's bow our heads. We'll pray together. And as we pray, in conclusion, recapping these points from Luke 9, what's your opinion about Jesus? What's your opinion? Who do you say that he is? You've heard all the other opinions. Some who said he's a good teacher, a good prophet. He's like Elijah or John the Baptist. The most important testimony of Jesus comes from God the Father. This is my son, my chosen one, my anointed one. Listen to him. And if we listen to him, we hear that he said he's got to go and suffer and be rejected and be crucified to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Who do you say that he is? Do you understand his mission? Do you understand the great sacrifice he requires of his people? Do you see an example from the text that he's always prayerful? His prayer life is the best indicator of our spiritual health. So, Father, during this time of invitation, I pray that you take you the word of God and apply it in our lives, in our prayer lives, in our, in our, in our speaking. What do we say about Jesus? What do we believe about Jesus? You'd use this time of invitation not so that we passively spectate, but so that we actively participate, really think, really consider the holy things of God and what your word says. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.